My name is Damalola, if we've not met before, and I'm currently in my second month of my new job as evangelism pastor here at KXC, which is a total, total privilege. Um, it's a privilege for me because I get to be paid to tell people about Jesus, hashtag dreamy. Um, but also, I get to be equipping you guys and resourcing you and supporting you and making sense of how to share Jesus for yourselves, where he set you um, and what you're up to right now. Um, and I just wanted to let you know from the jump, as we continue this series, about the good news from Isaiah 61. I'm your good news pastor. So holler at me and would love to hear from you. Would love to be, um, yeah, working together to make Jesus known where he set us. Um, and yeah, I said this in the last service, I didn't actually tell people how they could get in touch with me. So if you go onto the website and onto the team page, you'll see my email there. Um, so yeah, do get in touch. We'd also love to hear stories of how you're taking part in the mission of God yourself. Like I know that as we meet together on the Sunday, that there is this, there is this um, desire for it not to end in the room. Like we go around and we interact with family members, those that we see at the bus stop, those that we see around the place. And we know that this has significance for them. And um, so I'd love to hear of how you're taking part um, in Jesus's mission yourself. Um, and I've really been encouraged by like two people in particular since I started my role. Um, the first is a guy called Ben. He got in touch with me like, yeah, a few, a few days into my new job um, telling me about an event at his work. So Ben and his wife, Suze, they usually come out um, to KXC in the evening. Um, yeah, they, they know and love Jesus. And Ben works in a corporate setting, doing numbers and other very, very interesting things all day. Um, and in that setting, he meets with other Christians and they meet to encourage each other. But they don't only meet to encourage each other. They meet to consider how they might share the truth of who Jesus is with those who are around them. Um, and so as part of this, their firm had a diversity and inclusion week not too long ago um, and they staged a number of events online for different people to come along to to hear about who Jesus is um, and like at their like peak event they had like 35 people attending again this is people logging in in the midst of the work day having emails to respond to and whatnot but drawn um, by the prospect of coming to know who Jesus is and by those that they're relating with every single day and um, so that was amazing and again like a, a good event in itself but also like what kind of platform and springboard is that for further conversations over the course of the year. So that's been really encouraging. I heard about that about September time, that event. Um, and then in this coming week, there's um, a student in our congregation too. She usually comes through for the half six, as the students do. Um, her name is Beth, and she is studying law um, in order to yeah pursue the justice of God and see the justice of God realized through the mechanism of the law for those that she wants to work to serve. But right now she's situated at college um, and her university environment is not particularly welcoming to the Christian faith. In fact, it's been quite hostile in the past. Um, but Beth leads a Christian union at her uni. So she's gathering together with other Christians on campus, well, online right now. But they're gathering together um, to encourage each other in faith. But it doesn't stop with encouraging each other in the faith because they know that what they have with Jesus has implications for every single person that they get to spend the day with. And so this next week, they're hosting a week of events responding to the crisis of racial injustice that's come to the fore in a particular way in this past season. And but they're yeah, taking the time to respond to that in their context by hosting online events, addressing, yes, like the things that the Christian church has been guilty of in the past when it comes to this, and but also the hope, the unique hope in the person of Jesus for change, for reconciliation, for justice that can only be found with him. So they're hosting 
amazing events this coming week, um, Christianity, culture, colonization. We'd love to invite you to be praying over that, um, but also like to consider what might that look like for you. I don't have the time, but I could tell you of how my friend's mom evangelizes with frozen soup, but that'll be a story for another Sunday. Um, but yes, this looks very different for us in our different contexts and our different jobs, and yet there is something for us to dive into, something for us to make our own when it comes to telling people about Jesus. Um, so yeah, let, let's go on that journey together. So yes, we're continuing on in our series on Isaiah 61. We had the announcement of good news last week, and this week we have the crown of beauty instead of ashes. Before I dive in, though, I'm just going to pray. Let us pray. Spirit of God, we give ourselves over to you in this time. Thank you that you are here, that you are present with us. And thank you that when you come, your desire is to make Jesus beautiful before our eyes. So would you open up our eyes to Jesus in this time? As we walk through the scriptures, would you shine a light on our minds that we might understand your word? We give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, to start, I'm just going to read our passage. Um, and I did ask the last congregation to stand up, but I feel like this time around we'll sit down. Um, I'd love to encourage you to just, yeah, be in the posture of receiving for this. So, yeah, if that looks like closing your eyes, opening out your arms, like relaxing, get your shoulders back, um, and let the Word of God right now wash over you. So from Isaiah 61, I'll read from verse 1 to 4. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Amen. So as, amen, amen. So as we look at this passage, there are three things I'm going to focus in on in our time together. The first is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The second is the proclamation of good news. And the third is honing in on the crown of beauty instead of ashes. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of good news, the crown of beauty instead of ashes. So again, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. What does it mean for the Lord to anoint? What is this passage getting at? Well, anointing, we see it play out quite a bit in the Old Testament. And when you see the word anointing here, I want you to think of it as God's power coming upon the person that God has chosen in order that they might fulfill the purpose that God has assigned to them. 
God's power coming upon God's person in order for them to fulfill God's purpose. And we see an example of this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. And this is the anointing of Israel's second king. First king didn't go too well. So second king of Israel, and his name is David. And what happens is the prophet Samuel goes to pick David apart from amongst his brothers, and he pours the oil of the anointing upon him. It's a special oil that is set apart for the specific purpose of anointing those that God says should be anointed. And when that happens, the The Spirit of God comes powerfully upon David and empowers him to take on the commission that God has for him and be king of God's people, Israel. The anointing comes to push David into his royal calling. It's the anointing of the Spirit of God. And we see in the life of David, David is a pretty phenomenal king, but he's not a perfect king. His kingship is pointing to greater kingship, and that is the kingship of Jesus. Because as we saw last week, Jesus proclaims the word of Isaiah 61 himself in Luke chapter 4. And he says, he reads out the verses that we have read out, well, 1 to 3. And he says today to those around him, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one that this passage is pointing to. We see in his life, he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here. It's no longer distant. It is right in front of you. In his death, taking on the sin of the world, all that's broken and decayed and wrong about existence into his own body and rising in victory and glorious strength. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. But he's not only the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, he is the gateway into Isaiah 61 for us. We are the poor, we are the oppressed that he comes to free, but he also in rising again makes the spirit possible, the anointing of the spirit possible for you and for I. He fulfills this commission, but he also opens it out to each of us. Isn't that good news? Amen. Amen. Jesus makes the anointing possible for each of us. And how does he do that? Well, if we skip back a little bit to Luke chapter 4, um, to earlier on in Luke chapter 4. So Jesus proclaims these words from Isaiah 61 in verse 18. But a little bit before that in verse 14, we see that he's been baptized and that the spirit of God has come powerfully upon him. So in order for Jesus to fulfill his commission and open it to us, he himself is anointed by the spirit. Now, if Jesus, the Son of God, needs the Spirit of God, then how much more we? And the good news is because of who he is, the anointing of the Spirit is open and the reality for you and I. Amen. So the anointing of the Spirit. Secondly, the proclamation of good news. And some key things to hone in on here is that it's good news. It's good news. It's a message. But it's not just any kind of message. It's a royal message. Because it comes from the victor, from the king who's been victorious in battle, sending a herald to tell those back at home that he has won. So it is a royal message. It's good news, but it's also authoritative. See, the enemy can't come in and say, speak to a contrary reality, because what the king says about his victory is decisive. This is the news to put all other news to shame. So it's good news. It's a message to be proclaimed. And it's good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. I believe that scripture means two senses of poverty here, physical poverty and spiritual poverty. In his life and ministry, we see Jesus show such tender regard for the poor. 
Jesus spends time with the poor. Jesus dignifies the poor. Jesus never shuns the poor, but he is close to them. And yet we also see in scripture that physical poverty is not the climax of human need. Spiritual poverty is. And so we see later on in Luke's gospel that Jesus comes by a man called Zacchaeus, who in the eyes of the world has it going on. Zacchaeus has got dollar. He is very, very rich. And yet in the midst of all that he has, all of his accumulation of wealth, he is spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus goes to him and shows him grace, kindness, and forgiveness. Rather than shunning him, Jesus meets him with grace and mercy. So it's good news to those who are poor physically and spiritually. But also, and interestingly, as good as this news is, as decisive as it is, as glorious as it is, it is not always accepted. In fact, in Luke 4, shortly after Jesus speaks these words of himself, at first the crowds, they they take it, they hold on to it, they say what gracious words stream from his lips. And then they think about it, and they're like, his dad is Joseph. How in the world can he boast to be filled with the Spirit of God? In one moment they accept it, and yet they turn to reject it. And the key thing that happens there is that pride shows up. And again, it's important that we see that this is good news to the poor. And there's something about the condition of poverty that means that we are humble. Because those who are poor don't brag about being poor. It's a position of such humility and debasement. We see that this is a message that is sent out to comfort those who are mourning and those who are grieving. Again, you don't see those who mourn and grieve glorying in those positions. These are positions of being brought to rock bottom. And so that there is an importance in accepting this message of good news, of being brought to rock bottom, of recognizing before God in humility who and where we are. This is good news to the poor. This is a message of comfort to those who mourn and grieve in Zion. And just a note to say here, as we all process all of the emotions that come on the weekend, on the back of the weekend of announcements and try and figure out what the next month is going to look like, if you feel that you have been brought to a place of rock bottom, either because of the pandemic or other things that are happening in your life, then know that Jesus is attracted to the one who is at rock bottom. He's attracted to the spiritually and physically poor. He wants to meet you at your point of need today. Good news to the poor. And we see in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, we come by the crown of beauty instead of ashes. And that there is, a, these are verses of exchange. So there's a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, praise instead of despair. Jesus is taking, but he's also giving back in return. So we come to ashes. Now, ashes have um, two layers of significance in the scripture. So the first, we see that ashes show up when the people of God or the nations around them are in very, very deep mourning and despair. They're used to convey being at the absolute pit. And it's either from 
mourning sin that has been suffered by the people of God, wrong that's been suffered by them, things that have come up against them, or recognizing and mourning their sin before God, wrong that they have caused and perpetrated themselves. Two examples of this. So we see in the first, in the book of Esther, the Jewish people hear of a plot to annihilate them. It's pretty grim stuff. And when they do that, to convey their absolute horror and disgust at their condition and their misery at what's being done against them, they rend their garments, they wear sackcloth, and they sit in ashes and throw ashes upon their heads. Ashes conveying being in the absolute pit of misery. But also ashes convey mourning sin that we ourselves cause and participate in. And we see this later example in the book of the prophet Jonah. If you remember, a very, very reluctant prophet indeed. Um, Jonah goes in pride to proclaim a message of repentance, funny, to the people of Nineveh. And as he does that, he speaks to them of God's judgment upon them, that God has seen their wickedness, how they've turned away from him, how they've not regarded him at all, and that God is sending judgment upon them. And the people of Nineveh, they hear this. And they recognize that God is actually right. That they don't have anything to boast about before him. That actually his assessment of them is correct. And so to convey their deep, deep remorse, they tear their clothing, they wear sackcloth, they sit in ashes. Ashes conveying mourning over sin. But this isn't the only expression or time that ashes show up in the scriptures. An example from earlier on in the scriptures is in the book of Leviticus, between chapters 4 to 16. The book in, in general um, is God giving law to his people, God telling them how to live, how to find flourishing and the fullness of life in the confines of what he tells them because he knows what's best for them and they can only flourish under his loving care. But God is a realist. God is a father God is love, but he also knows that his people will turn away from him. And so as he gives the law, he makes provision for them to come back to him when they do screw up. And part of how that works is that they are to go to the high priest. They are to take a specified offering. The priest will perform a specified ritual over the offering. And then he will proclaim the people right with God again. And a key part of this is that they're to take an animal to be burnt as an offering to the Lord. Now, what do you have left if you burn something? You have ashes. And so we see in this moment the decay, the desolation of sin colliding with the grace of God. Because at the moment of the people's sin coming to God, he's making provision for them to know restoration and the fullness of life once more. The ugliness of ashes in that moment meet with the beauty and the splendor of the love of God. Death gives way to life. Now for me personally, this theme of death to life has particular resonance because for a long time in my life, I have struggled with the basic idea of being alive. I sound a bit weird. Being alive is great. And yet in my youth and as I grew up, I became aware that I wasn't living in the world of my own making. I wasn't in control of the things that I was being subjected to. I can't control the people that I relate with. I can't control the circumstances I find myself in. And what that made me feel like was an utter powerlessness. And like one of the only ways that I could regain control would be to end my life. 
And so again and again and again, I would ponder what it would look like to end my life, in particular if there was a triggering event. And like the way my personality is set up, in particular when I was younger, it's mellowed a wee bit now, um, was basically like a madly swinging pendulum. So I would be uber elated, uber excited, uber chatty one moment, cue triggering event and absolutely despondent. Um, I would just retreat into myself and question the meaning and the point of existence, point blank period. And now as I grappled with that and dealt with that. I think there were two things. Can you see this theme of two things going on the whole time? Um, two things going on, at least two things going on. One was that I was experiencing in my body the reality of sin. Uh, I was giving way to oppressive lies of the enemy about the nature of things and how things were going to be and how I would fit in in the course of them. And in my system, and it's being disordered, I was experiencing the reality of sin. But not only was I experiencing the reality of sin, I was participating in the reality of sin. And part of how that was true is because I've always known about who Jesus is. I've had the privilege of being raised in a home where I was taught about who Jesus is and introduced to him from day dot. Um, but I, I always struggled with the idea of fully relinquishing myself over to him and living life on his terms. And again, completely not having control. I wanted control. I saw with Jesus, those two things weren't compatible, but I wanted a life that I could manipulate to my own ends and at least just to be, not to ever be vulnerable to pain and suffering and hurt. That was what I longed for. And yet I saw that there was no way that I could make that happen in and of myself. And so my retreat was depression and suicidal thoughts. And my idea of courage was to one day work up the, yeah, the stamina to, to end my life. And yet, as I inched my way closer and closer to the grave in my mind and my thinking and my spiritual state, the grace of God was making a beeline for me. And so when I was 10 years old, there was a visiting preacher and she came to church and she called me out from the crowd and she gave me a prophetic word. Um, and the start of this prophetic word was a message of such forgiveness. So there was wrong that I had done that I was basically carrying on my shoulders and I felt so ashamed. I felt like I had disappointed God so much and that sorries in the world that I couldn't be rid of the shame that cloaked me. And in that moment, she spoke to me of the kindness and tender mercy of God, that he saw me and that he's dealt with my wrong and that he loved me. So my ashes were being taken away. But yeah, in Isaiah 61 verse 3, we don't just see ashes being taken away. We see, again, an exchange that Jesus comes and he replaces the ashes of death with the beauty of life. And so as she continued on in this prophetic word, she spoke of God giving me a commissioning, of God having space for me in his purposes, of him having a plan for my life. When I looked out on my future and I only saw my lack of control and my helplessness and the pointlessness of existence, that God proclaimed purpose over me, that he was drafting me into his army, that he was giving me a part in his story. And that, that moment didn't end my struggle with depression and suicidal thoughts, but it did absolutely set me on the trajectory of freedom. 
because I knew that God cared about me. But not only did he care about me, that he was commissioning me to be on his team, that he wasn't embarrassed of me, but he wanted to draft me right in and to be a bringer of life and hope to other people. Because that's what happens when the spirit of the Lord descends upon us, that we come to know life as we were meant to experience it originally. We come to know communion with God in this world. But not only do we get to know communion with God, we get to bring that to those who are around us. And all that's broken and dislocated and hurt about our lives gets swallowed up in the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God. And we can see that happen for people again and again and again. So I believe the invitation today, well, two invitations. And the first is for anybody here or watching who has heard about Jesus and again here has heard something more about him and you know that you don't know him like the Bible speaks of him, you don't know him in the way that I've described him. Well, it is always high on Jesus's agenda to come in if you will let him. So there's an invitation to you to begin life with Jesus. And there's also an invitation for those of us who do know Jesus, who are walking with him to encounter the reality of the spirit of God afresh. The commissioning on the life of Jesus is our commissioning now. He has opened this up to us and we have his spirit, but there are always moments in the life of faith of being filled again and again and again with the fullness of the spirit's power. And as we inhabit this new reality, this new life that Jesus has won for us, we get to see the kingdom break out all around us.